Welcome back to Stand Up Citizen. In this episode, we'll be considering what it means when the political community is affected by corrosive bad faith. So what is bad faith besides the opposite of good faith? So in good faith, if you do something in good faith, you seriously believe that what you are doing is right, honest, legal, even though actually that might not be the case. And someone acting in bad faith, it's an intentionally dishonest act, misleads another. You're entering into an agreement without the intention to fulfill it, even if it's with a fellow citizen. Or you're violating basic standards of honesty in dealing with others. It's deceit, deception, insincerity, duplicity. In politics, it's bad faith to persuade or influence a poorly informed decision. It's like intentionally taking a citizen's vote in a way which in the broad sense is their property. It interferes fundamentally with the citizen's autonomy as a political actor. Consent that is not properly informed, consent twisted by bad faith assertions, is not consent at all. Said a less polite way, one who lies, misleads, has undermined the essential idea of the Republic's founding. So here's one way to reason it through. First, all political power derives from the people, the citizens. That's in the Declaration of Independence. Quote, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Second, the consent of the governed is required for legitimate authority. Third, the idea of autonomy. Good, reliable information is necessary, is essential to a citizen's ability to make an independent choice and give consent. In other words, good information is vital to an autonomous decision by a citizen. Fourth, voting is one important method of consent. By voting to select their reps, citizens confer their consent and authority on those elected. Fifth, those who don't act with civic virtue, those who act in bad faith, can be removed by citizens. Sixth, the candidate who is elected by using lies and bad faith to persuade a citizen to vote against an opponent is interfering with citizen consent and hijacks a citizen's vote and therefore hijacks his or her consent. Seventh, so when a candidate is successful in being elected in this manner, their election may not be legitimate as consent is given based on erroneous information. Due to bad faith or outright deceit, and it calls into question the, the legitimacy of that candidate's new elected position. So what's the cure? Resignation? Rather than be held accountable in the marketplace of ideas, those who 
exhibit bad faith in this way, twist the truth, mislead, or do not follow through on campaign promises, which is part of the reason voters chose them in the first place. It's, of course, it's the voter's job to figure this out and not be duped. But how? On the use of language, George Orwell, the famous British journalist, wrote that, quote, the great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns instinctively to long words, unquote. The British historian Thomas Macaulay argued that, quote, the object of oratory is not truth, but persuasion, unquote. So let the voter beware. The art of spin is not quite supplanting truth with lies. It tries to replace awkward complexities with catchy simplicity. Successful spin doesn't necessarily have the effect of skillful persuasion, but it creates the impression of inevitable, unavoidable common sense. We are disarmed and miss the slights of hand. That's from The Stone, which publishes essays in newspapers periodically. Finally, quote, in a time when what masquerades as political debate is in fact the feeble utterance of unreasoned pieties, and when so much is at stake, we need his like more desperately than ever. Unquote. That's the historian Simon Shama on the sometimes bracing candor of Christopher Hitchens. So back to our syllogism of bad faith, bad information. Would a person of good faith behave this way? So let's look at a couple of examples. You may recall the NPR story about the Obamacare bashing. Misleading and alarmist statements like installing a chip in everyone. Obama's army of IRS enforcers. The death panels. And politicos whipped up a frenzy instead of the calm and virtuous actions that our founders expected, with little concern for long-term damage to our body politic. I remember Dan Bartlett, after the tax cut was passed, saying that the sunset tax cut provision was something he knew would be extended in spite of the fact that the sunset provision was to mollify people opposed. Mitch McConnell, around that time, said, our number one job is to defeat Obama. In other words, party is paramount, country is second. Kelly Ayotte, voting against the gun background checks, wanted to keep Obama from getting a win. And there was a bumper sticker around that time, repeal the job-killing health care law. So we, now we have legislation as a bumper sticker. Where is the dignity in that? You remember the stories about Cambridge Analytica activities to influence who people vote for. Is that interference with 
consent with the voter and citizen consent of the public official who benefits. I have heard friends say voter suppression is a form of organized, institutionalized, brazen bad faith. Voter fraud claims are shown by the FEC to be not a problem at all. Ohio removing citizens from voter rolls, if they haven't voted in years, was upheld by the Supreme Court, which is very disappointing. How can any rule interfere with a citizen's right to vote under the 14th Amendment? Uh, too much misinformation and bad faith persuasion leads to cynicism, saps vitality, leads to apathy and undermines a representative democracy. Apathy favors the manipulators, and they know it. So let's consider Mitch McConnell's unilateral violation of a norm in the nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, directly affecting the Article III branch without action by the entire Congress. If you needed proof that some of our politicos put party before the country, the posturing over Justice Scalia's death, after Justice Scalia's death, provides some evidence. Promises, uh, really threats, not to hold hearings on any nominee, and suggestions that the president not even bother to nominate anyone, surely demonstrated bad faith and a lack of governing dignity. The Supreme Court is one of our th three co-equal branches. As currently structured, the court is comprised of nine justices, which is a pretty good idea when you want to avoid ties on grave issues. Those who propose to delay or block completing the court's full complement show they care far less for constitutional integrity than for a short-term political score. We need a court of nine justices. President Obama should have been able to nominate his preferred candidate, and the Senate should have fulfilled its advice and consent rule. Waiting a year because of any reason put forth is an insult to the U.S. citizenry. I wonder why the press let the Senate off so easily for their inaction after the Merrick Garland nomination. Instead of giving him the courtesy of a hearing, the Republican leadership merely ignored President Obama's nomination and hobbled the Supreme Court, a co-equal branch of government. What they did was outrageous. They violated their oaths of office, undermined the Constitution. These are not conservative actions. They are radical, acting contrary tradition to tradition, contrary to the structure of government, contrary to principle, contrary to norms. So I ask you, would a person of good faith behave in this way? In retrospect, a few more thoughts on the Merrick Garland fiasco. First, Mitch McConnell's refusal to even have hearings on the Garland nomination is a high crime exercise of the bad faith, in my opinion a smashing of a norm, and a mark of cruel cynicism. Mitch simply didn't want to have the opportunity for the nominee to be heard, fearing, apparently, the marketplace of ideas. 
Also, the blocking of the hearing displays sorely lacking political courage, unwilling even to air the issues and debate a proper nomination under the Constitution. It was a violation of the law that established the nine-justice Supreme Court. Next, it impeded the ability of the federal courts to function according to the law and the court's full functioning as a co-equal branch. So, considering all these, what should have been the remedy? The Senate could have changed the rules to limit the majority leader's ability to block a nominee on his own, the well-established nomination and consent process. Someone could have filed a writ of mandamus against Mitch McConnell, compelling him to do his job. And the Senate rules could have been challenged in court to allow this travesty to be avoided in the future. Blocking presidential appointments is surely bad faith against proper executive power, but it also interferes with proper government functioning. The same effect as leaving important jobs open that's become fairly common. It's pretty clear that Mitch McConnell doesn't understand the separation of powers, the idea for co-equal branches of government. How do I know? He said on camera he wants to know what that president will support before he puts a bill up for a vote. He doesn't want the Senate to, quote, spin its wheels, unquote. Mitch McConnell, here's my message to you. Pass the bill that the Senate wants to enact if the president doesn't sign it, vetoes it, then override his veto. If you can't, then at least there's a record of how Congress views the issue. That's how it was designed by the founders of our country. It still makes sense. Being deferential to any president in this way undermines the co-equal role of the Senate and the Article I branch. Yes, it's another example of our well-designed system of government being ground to dust by operator error. Even the Kavanaugh hearings need to be thought through again. Is holding a person accountable for actions as a minor, is that going to be our new rule, especially after a distinguished judicial record has been compiled? Even if you disagree with the uh, decisions in large part, is that going to be our rule going forward? I have no quarrel with what he did as being a terrible thing. I just want to know, are we setting a, a new rules? And is, is it a good idea? Let's talk about the government haters. The attitude among government haters is a big problem for bad faith. Their purpose appears to be to dismantle or undermine the government in which they serve. An act of sub subversion that needs to be called out as radical. In pursuit of some credible goals, they use a rock crusher instead of norms and processes and thereby risk damaging the entire enterprise. In the process, they also cause diminished trust in government. Those who hold government in contempt should stay out of government 
if they cannot abide norms, traditions, and the stand-up debate that is the lifeblood of a republic. Those who halt or cripple government function seem uncaring about whether its ripples radiate farther than they intend, if they have any particular intention at all. They seem sometimes to be a cadre of petty Manchurian candidates. Some might even call it sedition. Those who exercise such a bad faith demonstrate their lack of confidence and undermine the vitality and dignity of the political structure of the body politic. We need dynamism, not the enervating influence of cynicism and self-interest. Gosh, sounds almost like Patrick Henry. To add insult to injury, our public discord has, of course, become entirely uncivil, and our legislators appear unable to cooperate in a bipartisan way on any issue of importance. Serious matters and oversight tasks become farces to the detriment of the citizens. The culprits who inspired this unfortunate development should be banished, and we know who they are. Not only that, they act entirely contrary to their oaths of office. What do we think of people who violate their oaths? And what should we do about them? Just a quick note about impeachment. What do we think the founders would think about a president who was allowed to prevent the Senate from determining whether he or she was guilty of an abuse of power? Well, James Madison again. James Madison warned us that, quote, I believe there are more instances of abridgments of freedoms of the people by gradual and silent encroachments by those in power than by violent and sudden uprisings or usurpations, unquote. Just in case you didn't already notice the erosion of the, the, our body politic, he warned us about the damaging effects of faction. And of course, factions are our political parties. Bad faith is a glaring symptom of factions in action. Washington warned us to control party spirit, quote, diffuse knowledge throughout the land, patronize the arts and sciences, let liberty and order be inseparable companions, control party spirit, the bane, B-A-N-E, of free government. Cultivate peace with all nations. Shut up every avenue <coughs> foreign influence. Edmund Burke, a contemporary of Washington and the father of modern conservatism, wrote in Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Disconsense, quote, When bad men combine, the good must associate else they will fall one by one an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Those who exercise such bad faith demonstrate their lack of confidence and undermine the vitality and dignity of our polity. We need dynamism, not the enervating influence of cynicism and self-interest. So what is the antidote to bad faith and its corrosive effects? Courage, informed citizens, among other things. 
John Adams said, education makes the citizen brave and enterprising. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it. Please send me your comments. Uh, our next episode is going to be on informed citizens.